Welcome to episode 87 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Happy Lord's Day. Happy Lord's Day. How are you doing? You know, I can't complain. Living the dream. It's a little bit rainy here, and I assumed that people really were desperate to hear what the weather was like. So, how was your weather? Uh, we finally have the last stubborn pile of snow from the church parking lot melted away. So, oh man, I feel like that should be a holiday. Every we've, year. We seriously considered putting in the air conditioner the other night because that's how the weather rolls in New Hampshire. <laughs> it was like one day it was 38 degrees and there was still snow on the ground. And then like four days later, it was 85 degrees. So. Listen, that's New, New England summer right there. You yeah. go straight out of winter right into hot. Yeah, the animals are really confused. They're like, should we be should we getting ready to migrate? What's happening? But migrate? Where are they going? I don't know. Like they the ducks, they come and they <laughs> the they ducks. land on the they land on the <laughs> lake and then they're like, "Wait, is it is it the end of summer? I thought it was just spring and but it's it's warm like the end of summer." They just Man, get I'm not down with duck migration patterns, but I probably should fill that knowledge gap. Yeah, it's all good. That doesn't Speaking matter. of things that are all good, you got something that you want to affirm this week? I do. I'm going to do my standard cheat thing where I affirm something and then I affirm something else. So Sneaky. I want to affirm the fact that we are adding two new shows to the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Yes, that's right. We're not going to announce what they are yet. So stay tuned. And if you're not in the mega feed yet, if you haven't subscribed to the mega feed, mega feed, go to the website, reformpodcasters.com, And, uh, there's a link there to subscribe to all of our shows. And not only are we adding two confirmed, but we have at least one other one that we're in the works of recruiting. So if you're subscribed to the mega feed, you'll get all their episodes automatically. You won't have to do anything, um, but we'll be announcing them. We let them announce on their own show first, and then we'll be announcing them on the other shows in the coming weeks. But we are super, super excited. It's like the Megazord is finally coming together, and we're just it's it's we're all linking up, and we're gonna fight some monsters pretty soon here. I knew we were only seconds away from some kind of Transformers reference. Yeah, have we officially decided to call it the Mega Feed? Because if so, I'm down with that. I love that the idea that we have like a Mega. Yeah, I mean, nobody's proposed another name, so I think by fiat, that, uh, not fiat, de facto, I think it is what it is. It also may have been by fiat, because I think you came up with the name. Yeah, I had another affirmation, but I totally forgot what it was. I got so excited about the mega feed. (laughs) I do feel like it's, was that Captain Planet? I think we talked about this before, like the rings combined. It's like with our podcast combined. One reformed network yes. of amazing content yeah. and biblical theology. Yeah. Thank you for stalling for a second while I remembered what my other affirmation was. You're welcome. So We're good if, at this. if you are not a listener of the Reformed Pubcast, you may remember that at the beginning of April, there is a very special non-holy day called April Fool's Day. And we encouraged our listeners to call the Reform Pubcast <laughs> voicemail line and leave voicemails as though they were calling for another voicemail. So if you go, I'll put a link into it and I'll uh, I'll grab the timestamp too because it's a great show, but um, sometimes people don't have time to add another podcast to their listening repertoire. But I'll add the timestamp so you can scan through to where our listeners totally punked Les and Tanner. So they're great sports. We had a good time with it. 
Uh, but I'm affirming all of the people who took time to punk and prank Tanner and Lust. Those voicemails are absolutely hilarious. They are. I was, I was shooting milk out of my nose. Yeah, they for absolutely fantastic. I feel like this means we've got like this newfound power. Like mm-hmm. we can just take any podcast that has call-ins and direct people to go punk them. Yeah, don't don't publicize that though cuz we have call-ins. Well, with great power comes something. Great responsibility. Great responsibility. Oh, that yeah, was great. like a that was like a <laughs> superhero setup for you. What is this? The Nerd Gospel <laughs> Podcast? <laughs> Which everybody should also listen to. It's true. So what about you? What are you affirming this week? So this week I'm affirming a couple tunes. And I think I mentioned before in our conversation, really love the band Citizen and Saints. And this week I've just been enjoying two of their songs in particular that are kind of like of the dancey variety. Like, but what I love like is God's like they're just dance floor. No, 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 not like that at all. The exact opposite of that, actually. All right. I was actually just about to say they have all this great theology packed into the lyrics. There's strong, solid lyrical content here, but it's got like this groove. So those two songs would be Kids, which is in the Calvinist documentary. Yes. The podcast. Yeah. It's in the soundtrack and Made Alive. And what I love by that is... I just think that reform people got to move their bodies a little bit more. Yeah. And so this content is just like celebrating adoption, being made alive in Christ, being raised up from the grave. And as I just were listening to them this week, I was thinking, isn't it just so appropriate to want to move to this kind of music? It's like that yeah. kind of joy and celebration. It's the right combination of a dancey groove with the right lyrics. And I was just like, I'm not, whatever. I'm not going to be ashamed about this. Come on, reform people. Get out there. Move your body. That that reminds me of a Babylon B article that they need to write about a reformed person getting a deep vein thrombosis during a church service because they don't move at all. <laughs> That's I think, actually pretty funny. Yeah, that, that needs to happen. So whoever the mystery man behind Babylon B is, you need to get on that. That's pretty good. Yeah. Copyright. Yes. What about denials? You got anything so, you just got to get off your chest? This might be a little on the base side, but I am denying the results of the fall that cause your urine to smell disgusting after you eat asparagus. <laughs> so I work in a kidney clinic, and so we have all sorts of conversations about urine, but I cannot for the life of me figure out what the mechanism is that causes it to happen and causes it to happen so rapidly. I can I can eat asparagus and then get up from the dinner table and go to the bathroom and then I already can smell the change. It's ridiculous. It's, and then Dude, it's, I'm not sure it goes that quickly. It does. It's there for like a week. It's so terrible. It's annoying. Okay, so let me ask this. You kind of already answered the first question. One, you know it does happen to you. But two, this is going to be weird, but have you ever smelled it on somebody else? I have, yeah. Okay, so have you heard about this? I think we may have talked about this. I only recently learned that that whole ability to recognize the weird urine smell from asparagus is totally genetic. And some people don't even have it. Yeah, they still get the smell. They just can't smell it. They can't distinguish it. So yeah. they don't, So it's wild. I've talked to people where they're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. That is because yeah. for somebody that's never smelled this, if you're like, no, seriously, if you eat this vegetable, it makes your pee smell re- really weird. That's a weird thing. Yeah. And it's like a really distinct smell. It's not just like oh, a yeah. general bad smell. It's like a really, really distinct smell. And I agree. The nephrologist, uh, the medical director of our transplant program explained it to me one time um, because he has no shame at all. And he had asparagus the night before. And he was telling me that it has something to do with like a, there's a particular form of carbohydrate that your body can't process. And as you get, 
or it can process it, but it can't process it completely. And actually, as you get older, your body can process it less and less. So like it gets stinkier and stinkier as you get older. The asparagus smell is more potent as you get older. That's something so, I'm forward to. Yeah. I always thought it was midichlorians. No? No, that's a totally different thing. Oh, okay. Conrad is Conrad is writhing in his chair wherever he is right now. <laughs> He's doing the Darth Vader. No. <laughs> I love that that was what you denied. I did not see that coming I at all. I can tell by your reaction. So what what are you denying? Something less interesting. I'm denying against having too many guitars. Okay. I mean, Do- I'm at this point where I'm, I don't know how you are, but I, I have, by God's grace and blessing, several guitars. And yet in my playing, I feel like I need to add a new one. I'm looking for a little bit diversity. And my wife tends to think that there is an upper bound on the amount of guitars that you can own. Okay. I just don't see that that's possible in the world that God has created. I mean, I guess yeah. if you can have too much joy in your life, you could have too many guitars, but I don't... Yeah see how that's possible yeah it's okay that your wife is wrong about this (laughs) i'm I'm okay with that i'm glad we disagreed straight up on that (laughs) yeah i i don't have too many guitars i think i only have two three yeah that might not be enough well i only i mean i'm not a very good guitar player so i have the one that's why you should get more i have the one that i use when i'm playing music during the church service I have my dad who uh, passed away a few years ago. I have his guitar, which is like a classic guild. Oh, I've You've seen, seen it. it. That's a legit guitar um, right there. And then I think I have a 12-string guitar that is, is in a case really? somewhere that I don't ever use because 12-strings are a total pain to play and to tune. And it's got a tuner built into it, which is cool. Hmm. But um, they're they're just a pain. So That's pretty legit. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm... You can have as many guitars as you want. Thank you. I appreciate that, brother. It's one of those things where I think as you kind of grow in your musicianship, you come to realize that they each do a little bit something special or a little bit different. And sometimes they're particular to environments. I do have a guitar that I wouldn't necessarily play in a pretty small church building because it would just take people's feelings right out of their mouth. Yeah. (laughs) And that one doesn't get played there. So that's the reason why I have it is for other venues where it's a little bit louder, calls for something else. Or like there's the... This is going to sound funny to some people, but I have like the VBS guitar, which is the one, because like VBS in our church, like kids just want to get after it. They want that dancing music. See, they want to move their bodies to like some good music that has some really strong theology. And so we can kind of push out a little bit and do a little bit more fun things that are not, wouldn't be suitable for the actual Lord's Day. Right. And there's appropriate place for that. So there's, there's a need for a guitar. Which, um, which guitar do you use when you play Teach Your Heart to Beat Again? Because that's probably the one that you want to be able to smash into the ground at the end. Yeah. Yeah. That's the one that's like out of tune. And then I've already covered in lighter fluid. So right when that song is done, you just, I just light, light it, it and up you're like, and, yeah. and just destroy it. That is my dream someday is to like, you know, sometimes you're, you have such a powerful experience of worshiping through music <laughs> that I have just wanted to like throw my guitar just, just because I'm just like, God, my goodness, you're amazing. And thank you for letting us worship you with sound and you just want to, you know, destroy. I don't know. It's a weird confluence of emotions yeah. and feelings in response. I yeah. was at a KJ52 concert one time. Really? And Pigeon John was opening for KJ52. And Interesting. at the end of his song, I don't know why he was playing a guitar because he's a rapper, but he had an acoustic guitar that he was like, he wasn't even playing and he was like slapping on it to build like a rhythm. He was using like a bongo. And yeah. at the end, he threw the guitar straight up in the air. 
and it actually came back down and landed on top of his head. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I think he probably had to go to the hospital. By the way, do you like that when you started telling that story, I misinterpreted the shocking part, and when you just said I was at a KJ52 concert, <laughs> I was like, really? Yeah. I wouldn't have normally gone. I was at like a music festival and it was like, well, this was the only this was the only stage that was open. And I was like, I still want to go to see some music. Here's the last thing I'll say about this denial. And it's maybe like to your style, a kind of derivative second order denial. I do have this thing inside of me that when I see any guitar break, when I see anybody really destroy guitar, even if it's like a cheap one for effect, I do kind of cringe a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like defacing uh, like an art form or an art piece. It's just of art. unnecessary. Yeah, leave the guitars alone. Save a guitar and play it. Yeah, they didn't do anything wrong to you. No, they're just trying to breathe again. <laughs> you just have to tell that guitar <laughs> to beat again. Well, here's the reason why I say that is because when I first started learning the guitar. I had this guitar instructor who was brilliant, but oftentimes people who are brilliant and especially involved in music are a bit eccentric. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were playing a piece and he didn't feel like I was doing it in a way that was suitable to the piece. So he made me stop and he got really serious and he was like, listen, listen, the guitar came from a tree. And I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. And he was like, that tree was once alive. And I was like, I'm tracking with you. And he's like, when we play this guitar now, we're taking this wood and we are breathing life into it again. You got to respect that. And I was like, so uh, should I just start from the beginning? (laughs) I I would have been like, listen, these strings came from a rock. And the rock was never alive. So you're a lunatic. Yeah. But if we're silent, these strings will cry out. Yeah, I bet you were paying, I bet mom and dad were paying him some exorbitant amount of money to, to spout off weird new age stuff like that. I mean, he was so good. Yeah. It, and I, of course, people would like get what he's saying, but it was just such a funny way to, to say that. I think about that a lot, though, I'll be honest with you. I, I wish I could get that out of my mind, but that's what I think about a lot when I'm playing something. It's like, am I breathing life into this guitar or not? So <laughs> I feel like there's a Stephen Furtick sermon illustration in there somewhere. There, pro- there probably is. I'll just get with him on that. Yeah. Call his people over. and then send him a text. It'll be good. I'm glad you think that he and I are <laughs> texting each other. <laughs> All right. We should, we should probably like talk about theology or something pretty soon here. Yeah, let's do it. Before people so, think that this is the affirmations and denial cast. Yeah. It basically has turned to that. Well, it's going to be one, hopefully one giant affirmation from here on out. But, yeah. So what we're talking about tonight is kind of a continuation of a lot of conversation we've been having about a couple of different topics. And we wanted to move into having a dialogue about adoption in Christ. And part of the reason why I thought it'd be good to just throw this out there for some discussion is, I think for a variety of reasons, adoption has kind of been underemphasized by 20th century evangelical Christians in their understanding of salvation. And we usually go to things like regeneration, justification, sanctification. We give those a central place, and rightly so. But I think sometimes what happens is adoption is kind of like this little stepchild. It's this adjunct piece. It's not really distinguished in the taxonomy of salvation. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I read this really interesting quote by John Murray recently in which all he said was the apex of grace and privilege is adoption. And Mm -hmm. I was like taken back by that. And then I I equally read something recently by J.I. Packer. And what he said is adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. Yeah. So that just got me thinking about how we understand this concept 
And I want to throw it out for a discussion with you because I don't think we dialogue explicitly about what adoption is in Christ and how it's separate and distinct or kind of merges with some of the other big hitting, heavy hitting topics that we talk about. Yeah. I mean, I think you're absolutely right that it gets kind of pushed to the wayside. I, um, you know, I've always, as long as I've been a Christian, I've been sort of Calvinist reformed leaning, but I don't ever remember hearing anyone talk about adoption in Christ or adoption as a theological soteriological category until I got to seminary. Wow. So, and, and that was only because I was studying the early church fathers where adoption is in a lot of ways is like the overarching benefit of salvation. You know, they, they talk about it in terms of theosis and we can get into that a little bit if we want, but this, this fact that Christ gives us the relationship that he has with his father in a sense, that that's one of the benefits he gives us is, was so central to the early church's understanding of it. Um, and to me, like it was one of those, I've talked about it before where there were certain points in my theological studies where all of a sudden it was like a paradigm shift because something clicked into place. And for me, the language of like inheriting the universe, being co-heirs with Christ, none of that language ever made sense to me right. in the scriptures. I knew it was there, but in my mind, I was doing exactly what you're talking about, where I was trying to fit that into like a justification paradigm because I didn't have any other categories. So I think you're absolutely right. And this is a subject that really doesn't get enough play as it should. It's interesting because sometimes with really learned reform people, they'll say, well, if you go to Calvin's Institutes, there's no chapter on adoption. Right. And I would say that's because it's not reducible to some kind of compartmentalized concept in dogmatics. I think Calvin actually saw adoption as summarizing the entire gospel. So right. it is in some way this umbrella and he's drawing it in and pushing it out at the same time so we can exhibit the essence of union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. And that's where I think it's worth talking about. So how would you define adoption in a way that's like a little bit narrower, more distinct than just saying, well, it's, it's justification or it's sanctification? Well, if only we had some sort of, I don't know, catechism that was written in the 1640s that could give us some help on this. Yeah, I wish we did, because that would be super helpful for times like this. Yeah. So question 74 of the Westminster Larger Catechism says, what is adoption? And the answer is, adoption is an act of the free grace of God in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his children having his name put on them, the spirit of his son given to them, and under his fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises, and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. So let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you say that adoption can't be reducible to a chapter in dogmatics, but Westminster has a chapter on adoption. So That's true. It, I, I, but it, it's interesting because it is so intertwined with justification and sanctification, right? right? The, the three Westminster Confession, the Westminster Theology is interesting because it treats justification, adoption, and sanctification as you hear a lot about like the twin benefits of justification and sanctification. But Westminster actually treats it like a triplex benefit because yes. adoption, sanctification, um, at least in the shorter catechism, adoption, justification, and sanctification are all treated as one sort of flowing benefit such that the benefits of those three things are treated as benefits of all three of those things, 
which I've always found really interesting. It's also been really difficult to uh, memorize that that chapter because it's or that uh, question. It's, a beast. It's, it's really long and there's a lot to it. But that's because this is really getting at like the crux of our salvation, the crux of what we get besides union with Christ, which we've said is kind of the the pre you know the premier, the prime benefit, and all these other things are benefits flowing from it. But these, this is really the central aspect of soteriology. What we are saved to and what we receive in salvation is adoption, justification, sanctification. Yes, and that's where justification isn't really enough, if I can say it like that. Because right. we tend to think of justification as this forensic activity that is primarily the result of being made clean and separate. And it's true. Who doesn't want to be made clean? Right. Like, that's great. But it misses, like, the familial part of what adoption brings in, which is, I think, why it's necessary. And I like that they kind of create a three-legged stool there. So the noun like adoption in most places in the New Testament, which I think is pronounced, can you check my Greek here, my pronunciation? Yeah. Is it weothusia? Uh, you'll have to give me a passage that it's used in. Um, Any passage in the New Testament? <laughs> I have to look. Like Romans 3, when Paul's talking, I think about adoption. The spirit of the adoption. Word. I think that's how you how you pronounce it, weothusia. But it's a compound word. My understanding is like first part meaning son, second part meaning to place or to put. So adoption, as Paul's talking about, is literally son placing. And that upholds this apostolic intention to express the gospel as the ultimate covenantal fulfillment. So in other words, whereas justification gives us this legal de- declaration, what I love about adoption is it's emphasizing, like it could have been enough for Paul just to say, listen, focus on justification, guys. Like, this is awesome. Be chill in this. But he goes beyond that by expressing this idea of adoption, which is, yes, being in union with Christ. Yes, getting all the benefits. But there's something about being said, you're being placed in the family. So there's an identity change there that's more than just the judge has made way for you through propitiation to no longer be mortgaged in your sin but you've been part of the, of the family. So yeah. of course, like God doesn't need sons and daughters, but he everlastingly loves them from eternity past to eternity future. And by virtue of the promised and accomplished redemption through his own son. So there's something special too about adoption where it's coming through the son by the father. And we sometimes misinterpret that by thinking of the human analog of adoption. And it can mess up our theology and understanding what adoption in Christ means. Yeah. So just for the Greek nerds in our audience, it's a, it's a compound of the word uh, huyas or huyas, which is like the mo- one of the most common words in the New Testament, but also one of the most difficult to say, and the verb tithemi, which is to place. And I think I want to say it's pronounced huyathesia. Oh, even better. Then I totally yeah. butchered that. Huyathesia. Uh, and the emphasis is on the second iota, if anyone cares. So, but what what you're saying is absolutely the case, though. Is so the way that I think about it is, just as you've said, justification is in a sense someone comes and pays our bail, and then we're we're free to go, right? But that leaves us in a state where we're we're still creatures, right? We still are fallible, frail, fallen, and um finite creatures and without some sort of unity with God, some sort of union with God where we're swept into his family, then we would drift off into the nothingness from which we were created. So um, that I'm not advocating an, an annihilationism at all, but the, the early patristic period conceived of separation from God as this drifting into nothingness, but it's an, an 
active and existing nothingness. And that's the destiny of all creatures um, apart from union with God. So adoption is now, not only are we, not only does someone come and pay our bail, so we get to leave the jail cell, we get to, we get to be relieved of the consequences of the, the crime, but we get to go home and live with the king. Right and on. He, he not only has freed us from our bondage, but has now welcomed us into his family. And even more so than just welcoming us into his family, he's made us heirs, right? We get an inheritance from the king now. And that's, that's a really beautiful thing that, I, like I said before, like that language in the New Testament, which is probably at least as prominent, if not more prominent than justification language, than forensic mm-hmm. legal language, that language had no category for me before. So it's really important for us as, as Reformed Christians especially to have this fully orbed understanding because the New Testament has a fully orbed articulation. And if we miss out on part of that, then we really are not doing justice to the gospel. You, I think you can make an argument that most of what Paul is talking about is always in the rubric of adoption. And he's pulling out the other pieces, justification, sanctification, to support that overall theme. Because it's that it's that important. I mean, yeah. they all have a they all have a part to play, but you're right. Like as you were saying that, it just struck me of how incomplete it would be if, in a sense, though this is still gracious and loving of God, if all He did was just essentially absolve the sin by way of propitiation. That would be great and fantastic. But yeah. it's almost like that doesn't show God's love enough because right. He pulls us into His family. So, and I think. And you can, we can talk about this and see if you agree with me. I think if you're, if you have a proper understanding of covenant, then you have to have adoption. Like oh it's, yeah, absolutely. It's a non-negotiable. Like you can't just survive on justification, sanctification and, and have a really shallow understanding of adoption or unfold them into the other. Because if we start all the way at the beginning, so obviously we've got the first Adam and based on obedience to the covenant of works, that was what was going to allow him to enter into this like quote unquote life some right. new quality of life that was confirmed by righteousness and divine blessing. So obviously he fails to, to obey, totally forfeits all the covenantal blessings. And I think the first Adam then established the historical and theological need for this covenantal ministry. And right. then here we have Christ. So his redemptive work as the last Adam was one completely covenantal. And then by faithful covenant keeping and by enduring the covenantal curse as the chief sin bearer, Christ inherits all the promised eschatological eschatological blessings. So that is beautiful by itself. But then, like you said, now, because Christ is essentially our elder brother through adoption, through the Son, we are going to get all the promised eschatological blessings, even some of them now. And that category, to me, is, is beyond just straight justification and sanctification. And it comes by way of the channel of the covenant. Does that make sense? I mean, is that fair? Or am I going way off on that? No, you're, you're absolutely spot on. So one of the things that I think we miss is Adam's status when he was created in the garden was as the son of God. So sometimes people bristle a little bit as that language, but Adam is called the son of God in the scriptures. Right. And so the Adam, when he's created in the garden, is created in a state of original righteousness and holiness. So he's created in the state of adoption. He's created and then he's covenantally adopted by, by God as the, the, the creaturely son of God. And were he to have fulfilled the covenant of works, he would have extended that benefit to all of his posterity. So it shouldn't surprise us then when the second Adam comes that he has to merit that adoption 
as the son of God. And like, that's what we see in the baptism account, right? Right. That's not just, it, it certainly is a declaration of Christ's status as the second person of the Trinity, but it's, it's almost more an affirmation and a statement and a performative speech that the father from heaven says, this is my son. And he affects the reality of Christ as the covenant servant being adopted by the father. And then what happens is in double imputation, Christ takes our sin. That's the negative imputation, but he gives us his covenant blessing. And one of those, if not the covenant blessing is this eternal sonship, this everlasting sonship that he grants us. So it's really important for us to remember that this is all throughout covenant theology. It's not just an an add-on to covenant theology. It is covenant theology. The benefit of the covenant of works, the reward of the covenant of works is eternal immutable righteousness, which takes the form for Adam of adoption by God. And so that's what we get in salvation, at least in part, is we get that eternal adoption by God. We will never not be his children. Once we've become his children, once we've been made his children, we will never not be his children again, which is unfathomable. It's crazy. Right. Those in Adam are sons of disobedience. We're guilty and we're corrupt in Adam. And those in Christ are adopted sons. They're forgiven, which is a forensic reality. They're washed, which is a renovated reality. And so the adoption of Christ fulfills in every way the cosmic goal of Adam's sonship, which blows my mind. And that's why we need adoption. We need it as a separate category. Yeah. Because without it, we end up kind of getting lost in uh, almost what you're saying there is this is so empowering to me because it's one thing to think that I have been made holy and set apart by God because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, his death and his resurrection. Who doesn't want to be sterile again in the sense? Well, that's not the right way to say that. (laughs) Who doesn't doesn't want to be totally cleansed? Oh my. That. All right. We're done, ladies and gentlemen. Don't forget kidding. to tip your waiters and waitresses. But the problem, I think, is if you just stop there, you're getting only half of the gospel because yeah. I can sit here and say it's great to be forgiven. And I understand that as a reality. In addition to that, it's great to have the double imputation, isn't it? To know that I can be just as confident in my forgiveness as I am that I have actually received every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And if I'm being totally candid, that's the place where I think I, in my minute-to-minute, day-to-day life, I'm not thinking in those kind of confident terms. And I think part of that is because of how I understand what it means to be adopted in the family. And not, again, just being accepted by God, but giving every privilege. And I was thinking about in our family, you know, I consider you my brother, right? Like you're adopted in my family and me into yours. And that's legit. It's both a state of being and it's a place of premier privilege that belongs to those who are actually part of the family. Right. But just because you entered it in a slightly different way than I did to me, doesn't make any difference anymore. Like besides being brothers in Christ, which I know just sounds cliche at this point, like we're actually brothers right like there's a legal part to that there's a behavioral portion to that there's an identity that is rooted in our interaction with each other in our relationship with one another through our families and we've got to really weigh in on that and think about that in terms of what it means in in christ yeah yeah and and that's i mean that's the thing too that i think people get wrong about adoption 
is on one hand, people have this tendency to collapse adoption into justification. But on the other hand, there's also a tendency to sort of collapse it into sanctification, where like I'm becoming more and more a son of God. I'm becoming more yeah, and more right. a part of God's True. family. But what's really interesting, you know, I kind of joked that like this section of the shorter catechism has been really difficult for me to memorize. But one of the benefits, and I've said this before, one of the benefits of memorizing the catechism is that you start to see connections in the phrasing. So question 33 of the shorter catechism, what is justification? Answer, justification is an act of God's free grace. Question 34, what is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace. Question 35, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. So what we see is adoption is just as much a forensic legal category as justification is. And if we think about that, that makes sense, right? Because there was a moment in time where I was not your brother. And then there was a moment in time, one moment later, where I was your brother. And that happened... That happened, in in our case, literally by fiat of the pastor officiating the the wedding, who happened to be our father, but doesn't have to be. But by fiat declaration of the pastor officiating the wedding, or in a secular situation, in the, the official who is officiating, that is a moment in time declarative reality, the same way justification is. So the same way that in justification, the judge slams down the guilt, the gavel, and says, not guilty right? Not guilty, justified. In the same way, when the pastor or the judge pronounces, I now pronounce you man and wife, that's affecting in a moment in time, a new reality. And adoption for us is the same thing, right? John 1, 12, I think, to all those who did receive him, speaking of Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God, to be sons of God. But that happens in a moment in time, both Um, There was a moment in time where Christ obtained that blessing for all of the elect, but there's also a moment in time for each of the elect where that blessing and that benefit is applied to them. And that happens at the same moment of justification in union with Christ. Right. I like that you said that because we should probably kind of speak to how adoption also is totally intra-Trinitarian. Yeah. Mainly because I know the Trinity is your jam. It is my jam. Yeah. And, but I, I love it as well because Securing a family of adopted children occupied the mind of God since before the world's origins, and it comes to pass on this stage of history according to divine timing and effectuation. So God purposed adoption, God accomplished adoption, God applies adoption, and we have each of, there is an economy of the Trinity even in this work, but it's clear as we read the scriptures that this was the intent from the beginning, and they all have a part to play. So where do you see kind of the different parts of the Trinity playing into adoption so that we're not just trying to impose like some kind of theological construct on top of the Trinity. Yeah. So um, it's too bad in a certain sense that the timing of this works out that I can't reference the episode on two thieves that I just recorded. I believe it's coming out on Monday. So if you're listening to this on Wednesday, two days ago, this episode came out, but I just recorded an episode with two thieves about the covenant of redemption. And one of the things that I kind of uncovered as I was researching for that episode is that the covenant of redemption in eternity past or the pactum salutis in eternity past doesn't bring about the application of the benefits of salvation, but it does secure them. And so in a certain sense of speaking, that's already a reality. So the the way that this plays out in covenant theology is that um, although the covenant of grace was not initiated until Genesis 3.15 and was not ratified until the cross, the fact is that all of the elect were already ideally 
under the covenant of grace and secured in the covenant of grace in the eternal mind of God prior to creation. And so in a certain sense, all of those benefits are already obtained and are already a done deal. And adoption is one of those things. So in eternity past, we tend to think about the eternal election of a per- of a people for God. We tend to think of that as um, primarily having to do with justification and glorification. But adoption is part of that as well. So in eternity past, when God the Father decreed in conjunction with his Son and Spirit, decreed that Jesse and Tony would be adopted into the, the, the number of elect and would ultimately be saved. He decreed not only that we would be legally saved and made holy and glorified, but that we would become his children and that, and that we would become his children in Christ. And that's really important is we're, we're only God's children in Christ. The right. same way that I'm only your brother in Ashley in, in my union with Ashley is how I am your brother. If God forbid there was some situation where we got divorced. I can't ever see that happening. But if that ungodly hypothetical were to come to be, I would no longer legally be your brother. Now, the relationship may still somehow work a certain way, but I would no longer legally be your brother. Right. Because my union with you as a brother is only efficacious in my union with Ashley. And and that's how we are elected. We are elected in Christ and in Christ we are seated above in the heavenly places. That is such a critical point because we often forget that, or we just think, well, God has adopted us and he has, we might add through Jesus. What's even better for us to understand is just like you said, you and I are brothers through Ashley. Right. We are also sons of God through Jesus Christ. Right. And that's what we need a sound effect on this podcast for like when something we're talking about. Paul Pauline style leads to like doxology and we just play yeah. that thing like oh, oh yeah we'll get a choir sound th- this was one this is one of those moments for me because it's so amazing to stop and think that God from beginning of time pactum salutis style if you will determined that this was what was going to take place that adoption was set and secured so we know by understanding that there was no accidental nature of what he was doing here it was deliberate it was meticulous it was part of his sovereign effectual will at the same time, he allows us to see that it required work on his right. part. And we get to see that redemptive work. So the father sent the son to accomplish redom- redemption, excuse me, to accomplish adoption in his own redemptive work, and then poured out the spirit of Christ on the redeemed sons. Right. And this is amazing how he brings yeah. this all about. And it's that outpouring attests to the fact that there's a cooperation here. Like adoption is at the same time Christological pneumatological, redemptive, and eschatological. It, right. It's this really wonderful, beautiful umbrella. And you see, in it, I think, the solidarity of the Trinity. You see that God from the beginning of time had this in place. It was in his mind. And then we see the different parts of the Trinity bringing about different parts of the adoption process, so to speak, not like in the sense of chronology, but in the sense of logical order. Yeah. And this just makes me want to worship God. It's not as if he just had like a standard written contract for adoption was like, here you go, sign the papers. I I signed you in. You're good. We get to see his great and glorious work in our lives, how he, he established it firmly, sent his son and then applies it to us. It's this wonderful, it's like a multi-layer dip. That's like, you just keep getting into it. It's like more and more delicious. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's really for me drives me to doxology is that the the way that we see redemption unfold historically 
is the way it is because of how the Trinity is ontologically in eternity past. So the, the Father is the Father, and the Son is the Son. And what we see, and, and I've expressed some concerns about the language, but I, I think the concept is good, is that the Spirit then is the, um, is the unity between the Father and the Son. So right. in the Son, we have adoption because he has claimed us as his own and made us his bride. Right. So we we are the as the church, we're the bride of Christ. And as the bride of Christ, we are now sons and daughters of the father, the way that I am sons of your father and your brother because of my marriage to your sister. But where it gets to be really, really beautiful in my mind is that now we are united to Christ and thus to the father by the same bond of the Holy Spirit which the father and the son are united to each other yes. in eternity past. And so, yes. so the EFS advocates get this completely flipped around, right? They right. look at the relationship between um, family members and they apply that to the Trinity rather than sort of going the other direction and saying, I can look at the relationships that I have with God and the role that each person takes in the economy of salvation. And that helps me understand the uh, intra-Trinitarian relations of the divine persons. <coughs> and it's just... It really does. It's one of those situations where when you get your head around it as much as we possibly can, it drives you to praise because this is as close as we get to seeing the Trinity in his in its nature as we ever can get. Yes, because it's not true. Ronner's rule, if you've ever heard of that, Ronner's rule is not does not really play out that the economic Trinity is the ontological Trinity. There's there's differences and distinctions that we have to draw. But it is the case that the ontological trinity or what God does tells us about something about who God is. So check this out. I want to push that like a little bit further and this might be really on the edge, but I'm trying to like even encapsulate what I think you're saying there. And I would say adoption, this concept we've been talking about is not intended to distinguish us from the exalted son of God, but to actually express the nature of our privileged solidarity with him. Exactly. So, and that's where I think we lose some confidence when we don't understand this, that we're actually in some way being ushered into this really amazing relationship with the Trinitarian God, and that only happens in adoption. Yeah. So, the, the believer's redemptive benefits draw on the actual biography of Jesus Christ, and the Spirit applies exactly what Jesus Christ accomplished, earned, and attained. Exactly. Like, we don't have to full stop. There's no caveat to that. There's no... To be a son is to be a son almost par excellence through Jesus Christ. Right. And that just blows me away. Like, I feel like if I really let that settle into my bones and metabolize that a lot more, I would think a lot differently. This is one of the places I'm being challenged to really live a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And what Paul's talking about there is really adoption. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mentioned earlier that this was a theme that's really prominent in the patristic um, testimony. And the way that it plays out for them, and I, I think this is right on, I think sometimes there's a tendency to read this through the lens of some later kind of innovations that were problematic. But the way that it plays out in the patristic testimony is the phrasing is that we are granted by grace what the Son had with the Father by nature. And what that means is that the Son in eternity past, only according to divine nature, has a particular kind of sonship with with or from the father right the son is begotten of the father naturally meaning that the father 
um, and the Son share in nature, and the union they have is a result of that nature. But we are begotten of the Father by grace through the Son. And so the Son gives us, it's not, it's not exactly the case to say we have the exact same relationship that the Son had in eternity past with his Father, but we have the same kind of relationship of a of a lower magnitude, right? right? He had an eternal divine relationship. We have a creaturely analog of that relationship. But we are given the same kind of unity with the Father that the Son had in eternity past. We're given a creaturely version of that unity, and that's what we call sonship. And that's what's so astounding to me is that we're not just um, in a legally righteous category, but exactly. we are we are made one with the father in a way creaturely analogous to the way that the son is one with the father in eternity past. And as I said, we are made that way in a creaturely analog by the spirit, the way that the son is made one with the father by the spirit in eternity past. So the, my patristics professor is named Don Fairburn. He wrote a book called life in the Trinity. And that's basically his whole thesis of the book, right? He's going through the systematic loci. He's kind of unpacking um, patristic theology, but his whole point and the reason that it's titled what it is, is that we are swept up into the life of the Trinity in a creaturely fashion. Now where it goes awry in some uh, particularly Eastern Orthodox theology is we're swept up in a divine fashion. And that, that just can't happen, right? Because there's a creature creator divide, which they wouldn't say that they're crossing that divide, but in a lot of ways they, they kind of break that barrier, but the life that we have in Christ the fellowship that we have in in the Holy Spirit with the Father, Son, and Spirit is analogous to the internal fellowship that the, the divine persons have with each other. Right, and that's something that kind of gets lost or maybe inadvertently trampled on when we only think about categories such as justification right. and sanctification, which we keep saying, but that's when I first saw that, when somebody was explaining this to me and helping me tease out the, I want to say nuances, but really this is a whole separate but overlapping category. It, right. it includes them. It's not mutually exclusive per se. I was realizing that I wasn't understanding what it means to be a child of the King. I just thought, yeah, again, I'm accepted by God and I've been made right with him and I have a legal status and a standing before him. And that's great. But it's almost like God is saying, I want more than just that for yeah. you. I want way more than that. And this includes not just a, kind of like this moral regeneration, which is generally we think of adoption, or at least I did in terms of, Yes, I'm welcomed into the family of Christ. And so my moral character and fiber is totally changed so that it becomes acceptable and holy and then recognized in the family of God by having a relationship. But the power of Christ's resurrection, his, his life in the spirit, adoption for the redeemed entails, yes, a moral component. But on the last day, it's bodily, bodily renovation. Right. So actually adoption is the thing that by virtue, when we actually become a sibling of Christ, the believer's adoption changes both their state and their nature. This is what is going to allow us to be raised again because we will be made like our brother. And the only way we even have a brother is that we've we've been adopted in. So it's not just like, well, adoption is a great intellectual, theologically rich concept to understand and to give some assent to. If you are stoked about having a new body, you can thank God that he has allowed that by bringing you into the family. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so many more implications that we could go into. Just one that I want to make sure I at least comment on briefly is this is why ecclesiologically 
the phrase brothers and sisters in Christ is not simply some sort of like moniker that we bear. Yes. Right. It's, you know, I, I used to struggle with, you know, I thought like, well, brothers in Christ. Yeah. Like we're all part of one family, but like that didn't really make a lot of sense to me because two criminals who are set free by the judge don't have any necessary relation to each other. Right. There's no necessary connection to each other. But if those two criminals are adopted by that same judge, then they become brothers. And right. so for, for me, adoption is also what grounds the unity of the saints with each other. The fellowship of the saints is not just a loose, you know, we talked about in our church membership episode, in our ecclesiology episodes, the fellowship of the saints is not just a loose collection. It's not just a loose association. It's a familial bond that cannot be broken. Yes. And that's, that's, you know, that's a whole other episode we could go into, but I very rarely see that talked about in the, the subject of ecclesiology. Ecclesiology gets so bogged down in like different forms of church polity and things like that, that the familial bond, the familial fellowship of the saints in Christ is often just given lip service in that, that, um, kind of that chapter. Sometimes people talk about it a little bit more in eschatology, but I just think that that's an implication we have to make sure we understand too. I think you're right to note that, though, because there's this tendency to think about that term, even in the church family, as one that's primarily horizontal, whereas it's vertical first. Right. And when we we associate ourselves with each other, because we first associate ourselves individually with Christ as father and brother, then that does, I think, drastically change our attitude. I mean, even saying that now, it again, as we've talked about before, changes how I interface with people, how even right. when I'm annoyed with people. If I think about that first, it totally tempers and gives me a new perspective on how I ought to interact with somebody. And for that matter, this is why I'm really particular about how I use that term. So for instance, I don't, just because I see somebody who it seems like they might have the outward markings of a Christian, I don't automatically just like call them brother or sister. I'm actually trying to be really particular about that because that is a very specialized term that's reserved for this thing that is adoption in Christ. And that's so serious and so monumental in our lives that I don't want to use it even flippantly at all. Yeah. Yeah. And it says something about our perspective on someone. If we stop calling them brother. True. Um, People, people noticed um, in my blog writing, when I made the shift from calling Tulian Chavidian brother to when I stopped doing that. Right. And that was not only was that intentional on my part, but I was actually impressed that people caught on to it. Um, that was just a matter of personal conviction for me, but people caught on to it and they understood the implication that I was making by changing that language. So it, you know, it's it, brother can be one of those words that like we throw around sometimes, but I think as, as Christians, we, we have to recognize that doesn't mean you can't call your coworker brother as like a term of endearment or your, your best friend down the street. That's not, not a Christian. You can still call them brother. It's not like you're breaking some commandment by doing that, but there is an implication when we re- are using it as a reference to other Christians that we should be mindful of. Yeah, for sure. And there's probably some reason for taking good caution in how you use it. Because if you're like, I mean, with any word, of course, it can lose its meaning with its ubiquitous nature. But by saying like, you love mac and cheese and you love your spouse. Right. Th- those are two very separate things. And so it's it's worth trying to understand. I mean, uh, unlike a practical note, when you're talking to like a Christian brother or sister, do you do a lot of bros and sis or is it just brother, sister? I usually say brother. I mean, most of the time it's in type, like it's on online just because of the, the, the number of Christians I interact with is mostly online. Yeah. But the phrase brother, it, it's weird to type bro. 
to somebody. Like it just doesn't so. work in type. Um, but brother this, is very common. I have this like pejorative <clears throat> association with the word bro in like CrossFit. Yeah. Yeah. Bro seems too casual almost. I know. And, and that's what I kind of think sometimes too. Like I love it. It's colloquial. It does kind of have something about intimacy to it if you know somebody well. But it, I mean, there's a lot of use of the word brother in our kind of common language, but there's yeah. of course something very special about its usage for the Christian. I love when somebody refers to me as brother, even in our, our own church, because I just feel like, yeah, that's right. Like here yeah. we are. We're yeah, doing the family is. thing. It is. It does. It just feels right. And it's, it's because it is right. Yeah. So speaking of things feeling right, what would probably feel so right for a lot of people is to give us a call, leave us a voicemail on the bro line. The bro line. <laughs> wow. Well, this is the one area that I say bros frequently. It's because the phone number is 607-444-2767. Bros. Bros. Hopefully so, yeah. people realize that that's, the, that's what spells out the last four digits. Yeah. I, I hope people don't think that we just say that. We just say that to be we weird. We just say it on the line. Yeah, no, yeah. that's what that that's what that spells. So it's it's pretty pretty awesome that we get that that extension or exchange or whatever it's called. And since we're again talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, as we wrap up, I want to say again how grateful I am to those who uh, let us know that they're listening, let us know that they're praying, even provide some financial support. Yeah. I'm so appreciative of the way that so many people take really seriously this idea of the body of Christ. And that even though there are a lot of people that we don't know personally, we get to interact with so many. And just like you said, we get these emails, we're, we're dialoguing back and forth, we get the voicemails, and it feels like family, like just right away. It's like yeah. family. Yeah. And what's really cool is that um, even more encouraging than the voicemails we get that say, you're doing a great job, thanks, whatever. Um, even more encouraging is when we take time and we interact with these voicemails and emails that people really are telling us that they are encouraged and that this is helpful to them. So we want to, you know, obviously we're not pastors. We're not anyone on the show's pastors, but we want to be edifying to the body of Christ. So it's, it's a huge encouragement to us to know that this, you know, silly little podcast that we do is beneficial to the people who listen. And the job of edification in the family of God is not exclusively the responsibility of your pastor. I mean, there are certainly appropriate roles there. But beyond that, we want everybody to be a, co- a part of this conversation. Like, it isn't our podcast. It's the idea right. that it truly is a network of family members together talking through matters of theology, of orthopraxy and orthodoxy. Yeah. And I've always been encouraged by you and others to take a big part in that myself, to get after that, to have these conversations. So yeah. join in, get in on the voicemail. And if you're looking for a book that might help you uncover more about adoption explicitly, I'm going to recommend something that I've already mentioned before in a previous podcast here. But that is a book by David Garner called Sons in the Sun, which has really had such a wonderful impact on how I process this. Yeah, It's deep. It's thought-provoking. You're going to want to put this sucker down several times so you can really think and meditate on it. But if you're looking for a robust understanding of, of adoption in Christ, this is a fantastic resource. Is there anything yeah. that you would recommend for somebody that's really trying to again understand this a little bit better? Yeah, I think um, for me, what was really revolutionary was reading on the Incarnation by Athanasius. Um, you have to, you know, you have to be intentional as you're reading it because we, even though we don't know it, we're deeply influenced by the way that the East has understood Athanasius. 
And if you've done any sort of like historical theology reading on the subject of the incarnation, um, sort of this background idea that Athanasius had this sort of weird transformative soteriology, um, it, it works its way in. So you have to be intentional when you're reading to try to strip that away, because I don't think I don't think that that's actually what's going on. I think that's a later kind of overlay that was applied to him. But yeah, on the incarnation, it's available in paperback in the um, patristics, um, popular patristic series by St. Vladimir Seminary Press, um, probably for like 15 bucks. Super, super easy and super affordable. Um, and I would just, just kind of close saying, if you have benefited from this show, the number one thing we want you to do is share this episode with somebody. So um, we want to get the word out. We want people to to find the podcast that haven't seen it before. Um, but also, if you're looking for a way to support us, um, we've got some some awesome supporters who've um, you know given us some financial resources that we absolutely appreciate. But if you're looking for a way to support the show, um, we take uh, gifts at PayPal at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com. And also we have a Patreon site. It's patreon.com slash brotherhood. Um, like we've said before, we're not going to do like a fundraising drive or anything like that. Um, but if you have benefited from the show and are looking for a way to support it, that's the best way to do it. So let me close out with this little quote from J.I. Packer, which I find really encapsulates where I've been with this conversation with you. And it's a little bit, it's so funny because it seems kind of like off the cuff. So here's what he writes. To know that God is your father and that he loves you his adopted child, no less than he loves his only begotten son. And to know that the enjoyment of God's love and glory for all eternity are pledged to you brings inward delight that is sometimes overwhelming. Wow. (laughs) I just just love that. It's just so candid and honest that here's all this stuff. He's like, you know what? That's sometimes overwhelming. (laughs) Yeah, that's good stuff. (laughs) Amen. I love it. Amen. Well, I don't want to try to top that. So until next time, honor everyone. Love. The Brotherhood. Oh.